good? One of my favorite things to do on Sunday mornings is to have that door and my office door open, listen to them uh, practice. And first thing that caught my attention was a violin. I love listening to violin. And then all of a sudden, Michelle started singing. But wait a minute, that's Hebrew that she's singing. So that was pretty good, Michelle. So maybe I'll have you start reading in the Hebrew text. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 7. So if you want to come up here and read Isaiah 7 in Hebrew, we'd be, we'd be all right with that. So uh, Isaiah chapter 7, beginning last week, we started looking at the various Old Testament promises concerning the coming of Jesus Christ that the Old Testament God provided a prophetic uh, glimpse of the person and work of the one who is coming and the one that we celebrate at Christmas time. And so today, as we look at Isaiah chapter 7, the famous prophecy of the coming child, Emmanuel, whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading in verse number 1 and read the first part of, of Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz... The son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Retzin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the heart of his, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Retzin and Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, have, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin, and with and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is a son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to a test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose uh, the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this wonderful passage of scripture that offers such hope, the promise of peace, the promise of of joy and security. There's so many things that this passage promises to to those who love God. And I pray that we'll love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and might. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I have been extremely excited to, to preach this passage today. And ever since Tuesday, when I first began meditating on this, on this passage, you know, Christmas is a, is a joyful time, isn't it? As a child growing up in the Midwest, putting up the Christmas tree brought out the the color and the excitement and anticipation against the backdrop of those cold December days there in the Midwest. Added to that was the, the warmth of the kitchen as my mother baked Christmas goodies and I could smell the Christmas cookies and the cinnamon rolls and all that sort of stuff. And it was just... It was, it was a wonderful time. Many of you have fond memories of Christmas growing up, I'm sure, as well, right? When I, when I see people, by the way, who, who put their Christmas tree up before Halloween, I, I, I have to wonder, seriously, I have to wonder, is the world such a dark place that the Christmas tree and Christmas lights is a way to bring joy? And, and as I think about those people, I think to myself, is, are they relying upon the nostalgia to bring them an everlasting joy that it can never bring? I, I just wonder when I see people like, by the way, if you do that, I'm, I'm not saying anything about you, but that's just my wondering because that's why we put those things up, don't we? To bring light and joy and, and, and peace or excitement maybe to our lives when the days are getting cold. By the way, we've got about another, uh, what, um, I think 15 more days and the days start getting longer. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. But the message of Christmas is all about bringing light and joy to a bleak and dark world. The, the first Christmas was set in darkness and our, our text that we read today is no different. Things were bleak and dark for the, for the people of Judah. They were living in fear. They were looking for hope. Emmanuel, God with us, was the message that they needed to hear. And it's the same message that we need to hear today. Look at this scene. I want to describe how bleak it was. Look at verse number one. The Bible describes what's going on. In those days, uh, the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Retzin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but couldn't mount an attack against it. So the year is 734 B.C., Israel, if you remember, is divided. Israel is a northern kingdom. Judah is a southern kingdom. You remember that, right? You remember that. Um, Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And at this time, the whole area is under threat of a rising Assyrian empire 
under the command of Tiglath Pileser III. How'd you like to name your child that? I mean, I, I, I don't even fathom. There had to be a senior and a junior, and now we're to the third. I don't know. But um, Assyria is north. They're, they're north of Israel. They're north of Syria as well. And so his route, Tiglath Pileser's route, would have taken him first through Syria, then Israel, then to Judah. And knowing this, Pekah, king of Israel, Retzin, king of Syria, they decided to form a military alliance, hoping not to get crushed by Assyria. They decided to try to force Judah into this military alliance. And the king of Judah didn't want any part of it. So word comes down that Syria and Israel are going to go down into Judah and try to force them into this alliance. As a matter of fact, they do come down. If you want to find out about that, read 2 Chronicles 28, and you're going to find that Pekah killed 120,000 soldiers of Judah in one day. One day he killed that many people, and at the same time, took 200,000 women, girls, and boys captive and took them back to Israel. And so knowing this history, seeing what's going on, Ahaz gets word that now they're coming for Jerusalem. He tried one time, it failed. They're coming again. And so look at verse number two. When the house of David... That's the, uh, that's the royal court. The house of David would be the royal court. You know how we say the White House, meaning all the administration up there? This is a royal court. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Think of it. They had already seen how one, these two kings could just overrun the land at a whim. And here they come again, would you not be afraid as well? Hold up in Jerusalem, and the nation is in turmoil, panic grips the populace, and things are about as bleak as they can be. Everyone is full of fear for the future, expecting an attack from the Northern Alliance at any moment. And into this fear-filled context, God speaks. Isn't that wonderful? Now, verse number three seems to indicate that Ahaz is preparing for an impending attack because he's out inspecting the water supply for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had at least two water supplies. One was a southern one, which uh, is the Gihon Spring, uh, the Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you've ever been to Israel, you, you know what I'm talking about there. There was a northern one at some point. And it went down into Jerusalem. And this is where he is. Notice beginning in verse number four. Look at the goal of Isaiah's message in verse number four with me. He says this. He says this message to a fearful Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart faint. That's the message that he's giving to him. At the, at the end of verse number nine, you see the main point of his message. Look at verse number nine. 
The main point of the passage is this. This is what God wants to do for Ahaz, and this is what God wants to do for all of us. This is a message for all of us. He says this, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. What he wants to teach Ahaz, what he wants to teach all of us, is that his confidence, even in fearful situations of this, must rest in the Lord and not in any political alliance. Ahaz is looking at Israel and Syria. He's remembering the 120,000 soldiers that were killed, the 200,000 men, women, or women and children that were captured, knowing these are huge problems. Think about this. And in his own strength, he will be fighting against insurmountable odds. Would you agree with me? There's no way that he can overcome this. But look at the perspective of God in verse number four. Look at what God thinks of these two kings. He says this, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart faint because of these two, what? Smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Retzin in Syria, the son of Remaliah. The raging anger of these two kings is to God what? Smoke of a firebrand. No, almost no heat whatsoever. Totally discounted. And in all of this, um, the, the, the issue is, is clear cut. And, that it, and here's the question that he's really asking Ahaz. There's an implied question here. Ahaz, is your salvation going to be by faith or by your works? That's really what he's asking and that's, that's a question that each one of us need to ask, not just for our eternal salvation, but when life gets tough, am I going to try to save myself through my own effort, or am I going to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Will Ahaz be saved by trust or by astute political gambles? And the message is, don't be afraid. If you're not firm, you will not be in the faith. You will not be firm at all. If faith in me isn't a stable foundation for your life, when all other ground is sinking sand, then you will certainly fall in the end. He's looking at Ahaz and he's saying, I'm the only stable foundation. Stand firm in the faith. That's the message. Stand firm in the faith. Is that not a message that we need to hear today? We live in challenging times. And if you listen to the pundits right now, we have all kinds, now is the time to fear. We're to fear political uncertainty. We're supposed to fear a virus. We're supposed to fear for our children's future. We're supposed to fear financial ruin. These are, and many more fears, and, and all you have to do is turn on the television, listen to radio, and we're told over and over and over everything that we're supposed to fear. And I want to show you three truths today that helps strengthen us in fearful times from this passage. Number one, God will preserve a faithful remnant. Look again at verse number three. There's something I skipped over in verse number three. Verse number three, Isaiah is instructed to bring his firstborn son, Shir Jashub, along to the meeting. 
Now, that's a weird name, isn't it? You know what that name means? His name means a remnant will return. A remnant will return. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that he said that? It's, it's because of our chapter divisions, we lose the connection. Look at, verse, look at chapter number 6 and verse number 13. Now, this chapter number 6, let me stop before we get there and remind you that chapter 6 is the account of Isaiah's commissioning. Remember that? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Remember all of that. And he's filled with fear and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God came, touched his lips with a coal of fire, and he gives him a message. And the message is a message of judgment. The message I want you to give to the people, Isaiah, is judgment. And he finishes this in chapter uh, 6, verse number 13, by saying this. It's a promise. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. And what is he saying? What he's saying is this. The tree that is burnt represents God's people. It will be burned to a stump almost like there's nothing left. All the unholy people are gone. And what is left is a remnant. Now, this is really fascinating. What we call an oak tree is not this oak tree. If you go over to Israel, what they call an oak tree is a completely different tree. And we learned over in Israel something very interesting about these trees is these trees, when there are fires that sweep through different areas of Israel, They can be burned so badly, it looks like the tree is dead, but they don't cut them down because the next year, a lot of times, you'll have one shoot, even coming out of a stump even, one shoot coming out of the root system. And pretty soon, another tree will grow right out of that stump from the the roots that weren't damaged. Isn't that fascinating? They knew this. And this is exactly what God is saying to him. He's saying, look, Israel is going to be overrun. It's going to seem like all hope is lost. But I, the Lord, will preserve a holy remnant. And they will return, even in dark days. And think about it. We live in dark days. And it seems like... What, what we love and value is just being overrun, doesn't it? But God promises this. Remember Jesus' promise? He said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when life is tough, and when it seems like things are, are very bleak, That's when the light of God's promises shine the brightest on us. The second truth that we see is this. Not only will God preserve a faithful remnant, but the enemies of God and their kingdoms will be destroyed. Look at verses 4 to 9. The enemies of God and the kingdoms will be destroyed. When we look at these verses, God commands Ahaz not to be afraid. 
Look at how God describes the king of Israel and the king of Syria. He calls them two smoldering stumps of firebrand. Uh, one, one, uh, one man noted this. He said, there's plenty of smoke, but there's no fire. Don't worry about them. That's what God is telling uh, the king of Judah. He's saying, don't worry about them. The, the leaders of these nations, they're just man, men. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to read the verses, but if you look at what he does, he, he tells them, look, the head of these countries is man. The head of Israel is a man. The head of Damascus is a man. And what, what, can we, what, what can we pull from that is that they're just men. And then he says this in verse number eight, in 65 years, they will be completely shattered from being a, a people. You know what it says? Completely gone because they're just men. And I'm controlling, we learned this a few weeks ago, I'm controlling the rise and fall of nations. And I'm moving nations around just like chess pieces. At my own will, and at my own whim, and my divine will. Let me ask you, dear believer, where is your confidence? Is your confidence in the Lord, or do you fear men? I have a book in my library, and it's called, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Isn't that the truth? When we fear others, others become big and God becomes small. And we care about what they think and what they say. And we begin to derive our value from their opinions. And we begin to work to please men. When instead we should be thinking about what God cares about. What God thinks, listening to what God says, and valuing his opinions. Do you, do you, dear believer, do you derive your value from the opinions of men or from the opinions of God? Where's your confidence? And so we have Ahaz here. Now, one of the things that I haven't mentioned about Ahaz that I want to say right now is Ahaz was a wicked, wicked man. He wanted nothing to do with God. He was a wicked man. And yet God was so kind to this wicked king who rejected him that he he encouraged him to trust God. We saw that already. Put your faith in God. But in verse number 10, we see another way in which God attempts to encourage this fearful king. He tells the king this, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Here is an extraordinary offer for a sign. He literally looks at Ahaz and he says, Ahaz, I want you to ask me for a sign. Use your imagination. The sky's the limit. The only limit on what this sign is, is your imagination. Now, what would you do? I don't, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I'd ask for the sun to roll back. I, I don't know what I would do. A huge sign. That's what God asked of him. As great as you can think of, and what is his response? Look at his response. It, it's unbelievable. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 
I will not put the Lord to the test. So here's my question. Here's this wicked king who wants nothing to do with God, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Did he suddenly get struck with some piety? Did he suddenly decide to obey the Lord? Answer is no. No, because Ahaz has no faith at all. He has no faith in God. And it comes out here, and it's something that we need to remember. Unbelief sometimes can cloak itself in the language of Scripture. And very readily pull that Scripture out when it needs to. Unbelief can sound pious and holy when the situation demands it. We can, we can learn to use the Bible in the way that Ahaz uses it, not to guide our faith and our obedience before God, but really to keep God at arm's length. To get those who press us to, to get real, to back off, to avoid accountability altogether. I wonder if you do that. Do you use the Bible the way Ahaz does? Throw out biblical jargon as a smokescreen to cover the fact that you haven't prayed? You haven't really prayed in years? Surely you can turn it on when you need to. Come over all holy sounding with just a flip of a switch. You know the words, but it's really just a... a, a a cover for a cold heart that has been captive to fear and unbelief for far too long. Do you do that with your, your biblical language? Ahaz is a sad case of someone whose heart is captive to fear and unbelief, and so he refuses the Lord. Okay, now think, God's already tried to strengthen his faith by showing who these nations are. Then he tries to strengthen or bring him to faith, really, by asking of him to give him a sign, to ask of him a sign, and yet the Lord is not done. The Lord's not done with Ahaz. The Lord comes to him, and I often hear people talk about the angry God of the Old Testament. You ever heard that? I used to hear that all the time. I haven't heard it as much recently, but I would hear all the time. Yeah, God's just, that's the angry God of the Old Testament and the loving God. Jesus is the loving God of the New Testament. How further from the truth could you get because you have God yet a third time coming to a wicked king who chooses anything but God, who doesn't want to have anything to do with God, and he comes to him and he says this. He says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know that that Matthew quotes this passage in in chapter 1, verse number 22, to refer to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, right? But that brings us actually to an interpretive difficulty. This sign was supposed to be used as a sign to Ahaz. So here's my question. How can a sign, um, how, how can, let me say it this way, how can the birth of someone 730 years after the time of Ahaz 
be assigned to Ahaz? That's a hard question, isn't it? You never believe the, the interpretations that scholars come up with. It, it's incredible. They're, they're very imaginative. One, I'll, I'll throw out a couple here. One is that Isaiah, we know from this scripture, the uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8, that Isaiah has two sons, okay? And both of their names are symbolic. We saw uh, what the oldest son's symbol is. Scholars, some scholars say, well, Isaiah is going to have a third son who he's going to name Emmanuel. But there's a little problem with that. What's the problem? It's, it's the virgin birth, right? So then scholars say, well, the word translated virgin doesn't mean virgin, it means young woman. I wasn't going to do this, it's not even in my notes, but I'm going to stop and make an explanation of Hebrew if I can, real quick, so you understand something. The Hebrew language does not have nearly the number of words that we have in English, and it didn't, and Greek had far more words than Hebrew. And so every Hebrew word has multiple meanings, and it depends upon the context what the translation of that, or what the meaning of that word is. Now, we know from Matthew one twenty two that it was what? What's the word, what's it supposed to mean? Virgin and not young woman. But you can go into the Old Testament, and you can find times where this word is translated young woman in that context, but you can also see several times where it's translated virgin. Now, using Matthew one twenty two we know that this word has to mean what? Virgin. Has to. Okay? The scholars have all kinds of explanations. I'm not going to go into all, but, uh, but there, there's several more, but the problem is that they're all speculative. But look at chapter 7 to 9 as a whole. We'll be looking at chapter 9 um, in, in another, I think next week or the week after. I think it's next week. Chapter 9 next week. And what we see is that chapters 7 to 9 are speaking about the Messiah. Chapter 8, verse number 8, says this, And it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and it will outspread its wings, will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel here is speaking of who? It's a synonym for God. So chapter 8 is talking about the Messiah. Then chapter 9 is talking about the Messiah, isn't it? What does chapter 9 say? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You want me to sing that for you? You don't, trust me. The, the chapter 7 to 9 are all pointing to Jesus Christ. So chapter number 7, verse number 14, is speaking about the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings to us to a third point that we now need to explain. The third point is God will save his people. And here's the question that this should naturally bring back to us is how does the promise of a virgin birth, strengthen faith for Ahaz at the moment 
that other nations are about to attack. How does a virgin birth 730 years in the future help him right now in this attack? Isn't that a logical question to ask? It is. I think you know the answer to that. Nothing strengthens the life of a believer more than the promise of a coming Savior. Nothing better comforts fearful hearts. Nothing silences our dread. Nothing stills the turbulent waves of unbelief than the Word of God directing us to and riveting our eyes on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, God himself. And that's precisely what God's doing with Ahaz in our passage. He's he's directing his attention to the one who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, judgment is coming. In fact, he says, it will take about as long as it takes a child to develop clear ideas of right and wrong. That's what he's telling him in verses 14 and 15. About as long as it takes a child to learn right and wrong and to begin to refuse evil and choose good in just a few years, in other words, and judgment's going to fall. And so as a matter of historical record, I'll throw this out here. Ready? This is 734. In 732, Syria fell to Assyria. In 722, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to Assyria. So just in a few years, in 12 years, um, the northern kingdom fell to Tiglath-Pileser III. And then eventually, Judah itself will fall into the hands of Assyria's successors, which were who? Babylon. The Babylonian Empire, right? And so, dark days are ahead, King Ahaz. They're going to be very dark. But God says, and this is a message for us, in my sovereignty, those dark days will work together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. So that from among my remnant of people, which I will preserve through it all, one little family will emerge out of the house of David. And we will see them one day make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of a a national census. And, And there the virgin shall bring forth a son, and he shall be called the Son of the Most High, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God himself, in the midst of his people, and he will save his people. And he will save his people not, now listen, this is so important, the salvation is not the rescue from temporal problems. It's not a temporary rescue from earthly trials. That's what Ahaz was hoping for. Ahaz was hoping for a temporary rescue from earthly trials. He's looking for a political get-out-of-jail-free card. God, instead, is going to provide something far more wonderful You're worried about Tiglath-Pileser and Retzin and Pekah? 
earthly kings and their empire building, there's a deeper deliverance that you need, Ahaz, and it can only be found in the child whose name, who is to come in the fullness of time, and his name is called Emmanuel. That's the rescue you need, dear king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a message and a lesson that we need to learn and relearn and relearn this Christmas. The message that we are celebrating at this time of year is, is not that God's going to rescue us from this trouble. If that had been what Isaiah was telling Ahaz, then, then Ahaz would have been quite right in doubting the, 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 the promise, right? Never trust someone. Never trust someone who tells you that God is in the business of making you healthy, prosperous, and happy. Never trust someone who gives you that message. Trust, never trust someone who tells you that that's the gospel message. No, God's promise is not that everything will be good for those who love him. God's promise, rather, is that everything, including the bad, including the hard, the, including the sore things, will work together for the good of those who love him. God never promises deliverance from difficulty. God promises something better. You know what that better is? God promises to sustain us in the difficulty. And he will deliver us from sin and death and hell. And he will deliver us to a fellowship with himself in joy and peace in believing and sustenance in every trial until he brings us home to glory at last. And his promises, and he promises it all only if we put our confidence and faith in, in Jesus Christ and nothing else. So you know what? If you're not firm in the faith, God told Ahaz, you will not be firm at all. And that's a message for us today as well. And in the teaching of our passage, we've, we've learned that faith finds its only secure anchor in the child of a virgin. Faith can only be firm when it's founded on Emmanuel. You want to face dark days? The dark days are coming. You want to face, fight a fearful tomorrow? Then sink your foundation deep down into the immovable rock of Jesus Christ and say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm secure there and that is the message of Christmas. It's not make-believe. It's not escape from reality, nostalgia in the midst of it, joy in the midst of it, assurance that although difficult days may come in Jesus Christ, we have confidence. We have a confidence that cannot be shaken, and we will not be afraid. Is your confidence in Jesus Christ? Are your feet firmly planted on the only solid rock? That's how you face difficult days with joy and peace, firm in foundation, and therefore firm through it all. And that's the second message of Christ in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful encouragement of Isaiah chapter 7, the wonderful promises 
of Emmanuel, God with us. We pray right now, Lord, I know, I know, I know there are people facing fearful circumstances. They're facing things that they dread. And the natural human tendency is to look around at the things that we can see and look to them for rescue. I pray that you, through your word, will strengthen your people, your remnant, your holy ones, the ones that Christ promised that he will build, the ones that he promised that when I save, I will work all things together for good and I will accomplish my good purposes in them, that Lord, you'll strengthen them today to put their eyes firmly on Jesus Christ and keep their eyes on the fact that you are coming again, not as a lamb this time, but as a lion, a conquering king. In Christ's name we pray, amen.